Hello and welcome back to The Secret Lives of Leaders with me, Daniel Murray, and my co-host, Rich Martel. This week, we've got a special guest by my namesake, Daniel, um, surnamed Priestley, though, who is a successful entrepreneur and a multi-award-winning best-selling author on topics of entrepreneurship. I first met Daniel um, after literally just listening to, I think I finished his book the same week as I actually met him, uh, The Entrepreneur Revolution, which is an incredible book talking about why entrepreneurship is so rife today and what circumstances have arisen through history to make today the best time to start a business. Since then, he has created a, a series of other books, his most recent of which is called 24 Assets, which is um, a book focusing on the 24 assets you need to build a business. Um, Rich, can you name some of his other projects, books and accolades? Um, yes, I've actually, I was, I, I was with him when he was trying to come up with a name for one of them, Oversubscribed. Um, and uh, so that's quite a good one. I've read that. And uh, the, I think his breakthrough one was Key Person of Influence, which is yeah, also a very good book. But it's funny, uh, he doesn't actually class himself as an author. He thinks of himself more as an entrepreneur, which I guess if you're building that kind of empire anyway, then I guess you are an entrepreneur in, in, in your own right. Makes sense. And um, in common with a couple of other guests we have in this series, he's actually a native Australian who's moved to the UK and found the UK to be a uh, great place to actually build a business and build a personal brand, which is one of the things that he is absolutely fantastic about. So if you're the type of entrepreneur who thinks it's important to build a personal brand, then this is 100% essential listening for you. From Runway East Studios in London, welcome to The Secret Lives of Leaders. Today's guest is the best-selling author and entrepreneur Daniel Priestley. Hailing from Australia, he started his first business at age 21. After arriving in London in 2006 with nothing but a credit card and a suitcase, therefore questionably part of the financial crisis, uh, Daniel co-founded an events company with two friends. Within 12 months, they were turning over more than a million pounds in revenue and were regarded as the UK's fastest growing training and events company. In 2011, Daniel released his first book, Key Person of Influence, but we've just been told that's 2010, so to professionally say it again. In 2010, Daniel released his first book, Key Person of Influence, and has risen to fame as a best-selling author on entrepreneurship and everything around it. Since then, Daniel has released a further two books, Entrepreneur Revolution and Oversubscribed. On top of all of this, Daniel's day job is co-founder of Dent Global, a company which puts on world-class business events with teams in the UK, USA, Singapore, and Australia. So all in all, the perfect person to speak to about turning an idea into a scalable business. So welcome, Daniel. Thank you very much. Good use of the word hailing. Hailing from Australia. Yeah, hailing. Yeah, yeah. so and, uh, hailing and from Caesar. And rising from fame. Wow. Yeah, that's, it's very biblical. It really. is. It very was. It was. I was listening to that thinking, wow, this guy's going to be good. Big words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Big shoes to fill. Yeah. Uh, no, I've, had, I've had weeks to prepare big words like that. So <laughs> I, I've actually, one thing I've learned in this journey is uh, words with two syllables are enough to impress any Australian. <laughs> yeah, so thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so just um, just to clarify, so uh in our research here that you've had two other books, but it's actually three other books, correct? So just take us through the roster of your books just to clearly... Uh, and just show that we can't do our research properly. Okay, so um, so the, so there's an entrepreneur journey, 
and there's like different phases in the journey. And there's a book called Entrepreneur Revolution, which um, is about starting up a, a business. Um, and that was actually the second book that I released. The first book I released um, is called Key Person of Influence, which is actually normally for businesses that are at the point where they're establishing a leader or an inv industry influencer. I then wrote a book called um, Oversubscribed, uh, which was about my fascination with businesses that uh, have a lineup, a waiting list, or charge a premium. Basically, businesses that have um, overcome the problem of what I call uh, demand and supply tension in a digital world, maintaining some form of demand and supply tension. Um, and then I wrote a book, I co-authored a book called um, What's Your Business Worth, um, which is not my book, but it's a book I contributed about a third to. Um, so I've had a few of those. I've co-authored a couple of books. I've been a contributor to a few books, but there's three main books that I wrote. And did you see yourself, like, you know, 10 years ago, did you see yourself as, a, as an author? Is there uh, something you wanted to do? It's funny, I still don't even see myself as an author. Um, uh, I don't think if you uh, mentioned your name to most people, they would say the author. Yeah, I, I think of myself as an entrepreneur. I've always been running businesses and building teams. Um, and I started organizing my thoughts through writing books. And, um, and, and it started out as a way of kind of like, I felt like I was learning lessons that needed to, that I wanted to capture just for myself. Um, and I started blogging and my blog's got some good readers and then um, uh, and then I started doing the books but no I never set out as as thinking of myself as an author my mum is a writer and she writes and and you know she's a proper writer she's a trained writer um, and she you know she she can spell and uh, and and, mm -hmm. and construct sentences, and, and she wouldn't that. be that impressed with our two-syllable words. And she, no, exactly. she walk around. You know, she's one of those. I am a classically trained actor. How yeah. dare you talk to me that way? Exactly. <laughs> I'm. I'm she's a classically trained author, and is she is she proud of you? Uh, yeah, uh, and also a little. You know, she's kind of like, hey, how did you accidentally become a best-selling author? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And can I do it? Well. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not surprised. Are you surprised by um, uh, the fact that you're an author? You know, are you surprised that it's taken off? Yeah, um, sort of. I mean, we, you know, we marketed the book, so... So, <laughs> so you'd be disappointed if be, not. But... I'd be a bit disappointed. Like... But it's like, if you ask someone if they're surprised at their success as an entrepreneur when they set out to be a mm. successful entrepreneur, the answer is surely no, actually. Like, this was my intention. Of course, I wanted to grow a big business. I know what the fuck I'm doing. Yeah. As opposed to, no, I yeah, wrote this book, to, and to actually be... now I'm like a really famous author in the UK. To, That's to, a surprise. Yeah. It was a surprise. Um, I was, like, there's a few lovely surprises. Um, getting the copy in Japanese, getting getting different language copies is, is cool when they send you through you know you're now in this language and this language and this language and you know the Japanese books read down and backwards mm. um, getting a royalty check is weird when you when you don't think of yourself as an author and you also didn't write the book for the money then you start getting these checks every six months from your publisher and you go oh fuck me that's pretty cool um, so just just a um, a fun fact but uh, the first time I ever met Daniel and I, I told you the story the other night but uh, I also you know but borderline illiterate because I, I actually took a three-year English degree and had to read a book every week so I stopped reading after university pretty much categorically but I listened to audiobooks and I was in uh, going on a ski trip with you and I was in the same uh, taxi ride with you but I didn't know who you were and I was listening to entrepreneur revolution the entire journey in uh, on the way up the Alps mm. with you behind me uh, and I had no idea who you were no. and I was just like listening away and I got out and blah 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 and then we did like meet and greets later and then I met yeah. you and I was like that's 
fucking and, so weird. And of course, and of course, the book is read by a very British person. Yeah, exactly. So I had no so idea. So had no well. idea. You yeah, know, yeah. It, it says things like, "When I was growing up in Australia," <laughs> you know, it's almost like a David Attenborough style. Yeah, and you, yeah. you meet me, and I sound Australian, and you wouldn't be any wiser. Um, so anyway, it's very nice to uh, to have finally met you and then got to know you. But um, I think you know, like most people, I've only really known you from a, an authorial. I made that word up. Um, context authoritarian yeah absolutely <laughs> I, like, I've only known you in a dictatorship format. <laughs> I just wanted to, uh, to, to to take it back a little bit so from the start so you're our second guest to make it over from Australia so we had our very Australian sounding Alethea Navarro mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know I thought it'd be really interesting to go back to the time you were in Australia mm-hmm. so um, you're already in business in Australia with a growing and solid events company yep so what was the motivation to leave uh, so from age 21 to 25, uh, I had a super fast growth business. So um, launched at 21, uh, we did $1.3 million worth of sales in the first uh, year. Um, and then in year three, we were doing a million a month in sales, had a, te- a national team and... Um, so Australian dollars. Australian dollars, so about four or five pounds. pounds. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Post-Brexit, it's the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Post-Brexit, it's one for one now. Uh, but yeah, I think we had a $10.7 million worth of sales in a year that we'd made. Um, we had a team of about, I don't know, 20 so. Um, and in that year, which was 2005, I did 174 events around Australia. So three a week. Um, and essentially, I was just absolutely burnt out uh, and I hadn't travelled. A few of my friends had gone to the UK and I had it in my head that I that I wanted to do something different. I wanted to travel. I'd never even actually been above the uh, equator. Um, so um, so I, I was introduced by a friend to this guy who had a successful product that was selling well in Australia and he said, do you want to co-launch it and, and take it into the UK? Um, you know, do you know anything about uh, the UK and I remember on the contract I was only 25 at the time but on the contract I wrote England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales and spelt Wales like the no, whale that swims <laughs> um, and like that's how little that's how stupid like you know naive I was um, but uh, but I had not been above the equator so I, I got out of the business that I was in um, it was a good time to get out of it I got out of my share I put a management team in place who who started buying out the business um, and these were guys who already worked in the business and then they also decided that they were going to come and join me in the UK later on um, so it was a bit of a pivot bit of a change um, launch yeah and then came over to the UK but I, I really came out over for the same reason most Australians do which is to base myself in London and to explore Europe Right, okay, so is it because when you were in Australia, really your sphere of influence is around Southeast Asia, ultimately? And... No, I was just burnt out. I was just I just did 174 events uh, in a year, and I was just exhausted and, right. and thought... Yeah, the slow pace of London seemed to be yeah. there. I also uh, felt, beach. Like, I felt like um, I'd grown up too fast. That was actually my thought, that I was 25 and I was doing way too serious things um, and taking on way too bigger problems because a, a super fast growth business, everyone sounds like, oh, that would be the best thing ever to be doing $10 million worth of sales or millions of dollars worth of sales in the first couple of years. But the reality of it is it's really exhausting and you're constantly battling uh, cash flow issues, you're constantly battling team issues, you're making mistakes, you're letting people down, um, you're doing your best to juggle, you know, 
but fast growth is really hard. So I at 25, I felt like I'm, you know, I, you know, I didn't get into business to be serious. I got into business to have fun, and this is not fun. Um, uh, so I'm just going to uh, run away and and start something new. I, I at the time I absolutely loved the startup phase. I love working with a blank sheet at the time, not so much anymore. But I loved the idea of working with a blank sheet of paper and getting something started. And the business had actually evolved to a very grown-up kind of thinking, and I, I just wanted to go and do something a bit different. What is it that you don't like about uh, that phase currently? Then, well, you well, I've changed, so I've grown up. But at the time, it was the you know you've got to have rules and procedures and systems, and you, you know the, the fun of starting something, and then the you know what it turns into pretty quickly of of actually management and leadership and um, problem solving and all that sort of stuff. So the glamorous side of entrepreneurship is creativity and innovation and product development and all that sort of stuff. And then pretty quickly it turns into management, leadership, problem solving, administration, you know, cash flow, blah, 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 blah. So I was I was very much kind of like, you know, um, I mean, I was driving around in a BMW at 25, you know, mm. in a BMW X5 with a couple of houses and all this sort of, like, I was a proper old man. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't... Uh, yeah, but you must have thought you were pretty cool. Yeah, I thought at I was At 25? Cool. I thought I, there was a few moments where I thought I was cool. Yeah, well, why the fuck not? I mean, that's all, all personally well-deserved, so I think that's absolutely fair enough. Um, did you uh, raise money for your first business? I mean, how much of that BMW was technically someone else's? Uh, well, actually... Which home was yours? The, the BMW was... Um, the BMW was actually the probably one of the only things I financed. Um, so it was so the business was launched actually in year one off the back of a credit card. Prior to that, I was from nineteen to twenty. I was um, not age nineteen and twenty. I was working for a mentor who was an entrepreneur, yep. um, and I was putting a lot of expenses through my credit card and getting it cleared off at the end of the month. And uh, as a twenty-year-old, I ended up with a twenty-thousand-dollar credit card limit. Um, which was rare for a twenty-year-old, um, and um, and I had a gold uh, gold credit card with a twenty grand limit. So I actually launched my business off the back of my own credit card. So you know, investors like long term, really nothing no, ever. No, no, in that business, no. Oh, okay, fine. So we'll come on to that later. That must yeah. be quite liberating then, really. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it was pretty cool. Yeah. 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 So I mean, really, you know, you're you're not answering to someone else. So you know, I think that's. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, we had business. It's unusual. We had we had company that we were in partnership with. We had um, you know twenty staff, so you know, st- still felt responsible. Sure. But, um, but yeah, not not investors at that stage. And the company was called Triumphant Events. Yep. So what happened to it? Where is it now? Uh, so we ended up. Um, the decision was made eventually that actually at the core of what we want to do was not events. So the first. The first thing of calling it triumphant events was originally essentially that what we do is events um, and that's what we're really into and then as the business evolved or as I evolved I realized actually at the heart of what I'm into was the training the development the intellectual property um, entrepreneurship Um, around 2008 I think it was I had become really interested in what's called accelerators or incubators and I was very fascinated with um, it's very fascinated with companies that go into incubators or startups that go into incubators and accelerators and suddenly they go really big really fast and a lot of very big companies billion dollar companies had come out of accelerators and incubators yeah and i was getting more and more drawn to that, that as an idea um and having a background running training development and events i was good at that side of things 
but being a company called Triumphant Events doesn't really say that actually at the heart of what we do is accelerate business growth. Absolutely. Um, so as the business changed, it became obvious that Triumphant Events was not the brand to do that through. So here in the UK, we were running some of the best entre- or big entrepreneur trainings. Um, we were People who'd built billion-dollar businesses were coming and speaking at our events. Um, people who were best-selling authors was coming and speaking at our events. People who were Dragon's Den people were speaking at our events. So we were doing a lot in the entrepreneur space. Yeah. And I was becoming more and more in love with entrepreneurship and the acceleration. And, and the product that we'd launched here in the UK was an entrepreneur uh, leadership development tool, um, a personality profiling tool that entrepreneur for entrepreneurs to help self-manage and be better entrepreneurs, leaders, and managers. Um, so all of that was like coming together and yeah, it just became obvious that triumphant events didn't really reflect what we did and what, you know, who we were. Yeah. So, um, starting from scratch with a new, uh, completely new country. Yep. Um, quite alarming. How long did it take you to go from there to the next proper thing? Like that was your, that was your own, that you started up and, you know, where was the overlap with writing, uh, key person of influence, your first book? So here's what happened. Um, I started triumphant events, uh, here in the UK, uh, and the story is a suitcase and a credit card. The um, honest piece of that story, though, is that the credit card had a big limit. So people who think that I started a credit a suitcase and a credit card and the credit card was £1,000 or £2,000, no, it was tens of thousands of pounds. Sure. So I, I, that probably sounds a little oversimplified. I, I had more available It's great credit. in a tweet, though. It's a great tweet. <laughs> um, but I had more credit card spending power than most people who are early to, or mid-20s do. Sure. Um, because of my background, yeah, um, the and I think it was something like seventy thousand dollars that I had available on my credit card. So it was at the time twenty five, thirty thousand pounds. Yeah. Um, so I launched with a fairly modest budget for a launch. Um, we launched and sold the new product, the the entrepreneur profiling. We had associated training and development with that. Uh, we then sourced a product out of the US that was a leadership training and development product. Launched that. And things were going really well until 2008, 2009, uh, when the financial collapse or the financial crash uh, happened. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, 
If you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. People spending too much on their credit cards, I wonder. From, from, yeah. from yes, yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and having two homes. <laughs> yeah, I think also probably the, the, the banking side of things. Oh, sure. Well, that's well. Yeah, yeah sure. Well. But, you know, if we had, if we had to nail three things, I think we would say credit cards, two houses, and BMWs. And yeah, yeah <laughs> no, exactly. Don't throw derivatives in there. Come yeah. on, next would be blaming okay, Iceland. Right. It was my fault. Yeah, exactly. Um, Better. So, uh, so what happened was I, um, I got... I got uh, into a position where the business wasn't going as well as it had done after the financial crash because leadership training and development is one of the things people cut. Um, it's not a, it's not an essential spend. So we felt the brunt of the financial crisis and it caused me to really think through the brand, the products, all of that sort of stuff. And I had a great chat with a mentor friend of mine who said one of the weaknesses of your business is you don't own any of your own intellectual property. He said that essentially our business was a brokerage model. And brokerage model basically means that um, you don't own your own products, you're moving other people's products. You're a, you're a sales and marketing engine for somebody else. And th- that was absolutely correct. It was a perfect spot on um, uh, observation. Uh, so he suggested, why don't you think about if you're going to relaunch the business, you, you should really try and develop and own your own intellectual property and have something more to hang the business on, you know, that's yours. Um, and the painful thing with this is that I'd spent a couple of years building the brand and the development of these other products that we'd launched. And then they cut ties with us because our sales had dropped, but then they went direct to market and, and actually made a lot of money. Um, I built their brand and then they went direct to market. So a common element with the people that I was promoting is that they were authors. So I naturally started thinking maybe I should write my own book. And also the idea that how do you find intellectual property? How do you figure out what is your method, your DNA, your philosophy on things? And um, from working with a lot of people who were speakers, who had successful companies, they had actually talked about that they'd had breakthrough moments in understanding their business when they had written their books or when they're blogging or writing articles so that got me thinking about writing a book well as in uh they would start writing a book and during the process they would realize that they'd never put it down on paper but they did have a certain way that was done yeah totally yeah okay that's really interesting because i have always wondered that myself you know i think the uh, really interesting thing about consultants is like when when do you realize that you've got a unique way of doing mm. this and what really makes you different to someone else's way and i guess you know just trying and practice on your the own writing is... process is like a mining process for mm. ip you have to go mining for what's the story that would get the point across or what's the model that would actually sum this up or how would you build an answer to that problem so it's kind of like a, a mining you're mining for intellectual property so so a, a few things started to converge number one i became i'd become really interested in accelerators and incubators Number two, one of the very first business books I'd ever read, written, uh, sorry, read, you know, in my teens was a strange book called *The Pig and the Python*, 
And the pig and the python basically described the baby boomer phenomenon and said that baby boomers are this massive lump in the population and they move through the whole population, touching everything, changing industries, transforming things as they go. And that you should always keep in mind what the baby boomers are up to and what they're doing. So I had this kind of mindset of, I wonder, you know, if most incubators and accelerators are set up for 22-year-olds who can code, I wonder if you could do an accelerator incubator for 45-year-olds who have actually been in their industry 20 years and they don't understand the technology, but they totally understand their industry. So that was like one of my first kind of ideas that I was playing with and, and um, I was doing, you know, a lot of the people who were turning up to our events were leaders and they were, you know, 35 to 50 as a, as a more, more so than 20 to 35. Mm. So, yeah, so that, those were the ideas that were converging. So I had it in my head at around 2009 that I was going to launch an accelerator incubator for people who had industry experience versus technology experience. So take us a little bit um, inside what it takes to be a writer then. So would you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Because this is an interesting one in authors, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably an extrovert. Um, um, I, w- I wouldn't say I'm a high extrovert. I actually recharge on my own as well. And I do en- really enjoy spending like time away from people. Um, but on the whole, I'm a people person. And I externalize thoughts and think, you know, chat things through. I tend to. So how do you feel about putting yourself out there? So it's a really interesting question because um, your whole um, USP is really uh, about getting people to create value in their own point of view and essentially putting themselves on a stage and trying to Mm. uh, engage other people to listen to their point of view. It's a very outward facing, you know, and if you're not willing to do those things, you're not going to be able to create as much revenue and really they're probably not the right kind of profile for your business model. So how do you feel about being someone that puts themselves out there? This is me. This is my opinion. And, I, you know, I'm open yeah. to be judged now. Well, to, to be honest, I like to think that I'm not trying to put myself in the spotlight, but I'm trying to put the spotlight on something. Um, so I don't I'm not someone I really hate um, being the focus of attention, um, to be perfectly honest. So um, strangely, like the other night I got invited to speak at the Houses of Parliament and um, and it was for an entrepreneurial group of you know, sort of startups and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, and I was really comfortable talking about the times we live in, the trends that are unfolding, the importance of being a key person of influence. And when I'm talking about that stuff, I'm thinking about them being a key person of influence and I'm talking about the trends and the phenomenon. Yeah. But at the, end of the, um, at the end of the event, they decided that what they wanted to do is all line up and get a photo with me. And I feel deeply uncomfortable with that. The idea that I'm someone famous or someone... Uh, in a spotlight I really don't like I like to be the spotlight I like Mm, to put the spotlight on things Um, and what I encourage other people to do is not to try and be in the spotlight but just try to figure out what it is that you're trying to shine a light on what are you trying to draw people's attention to and make it about that it's um, ultimately for the person listening they're not listening because they want to know about Daniel Priest they're listening because they want to know about their journey and their future and they're trying to pick up ideas you know, they're not curious about me. They're curious about themselves and their own journey. So Absolutely, I, yeah. So I feel comfortable. I feel comfortable talking about things from that perspective that I'm helping someone. Um, I don't feel comfortable making it about myself. I I actually feel pretty deeply uncomfortable with that as a concept. So um, regarding your books, so can you take us through? Because we talked about this the other day, actually. But you have a process for your books in terms of there's a chronology. Yep. 
Um, can you take us through the chronology and and why? Yeah, and, and, and therefore, I guess what's in the future for the books? Yeah, so um, from interviewing five thousand entrepreneurs, um, Rich, were you one of them? Were you, no, no. So, or, or maybe I'll be asked for the next book. Well, been, uh, doesn't sound like it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not. Um, uh, I feel like I'm a bit obligated. Do you do you want to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, we're going to get time in now. Actually, <laughs> uh, you'll have to. It's getting dark. So I discovered that there was very much a regardless of business or industry there was a very predictable path that people had been through um, so there's the startup journey which is the excitement and anticipation of launch and then there's what we call the wilderness which is often people being all by themselves trying to figure it out all by themselves and not having a team around them um, the faster you can get out of that to what we call a boutique um you're in a much better position so the boutique is typically a three to twelve person organization you get struggling boutiques that define themselves by geography and you get lifestyle boutiques which define themselves by an ideology um, and use digital and technology and all that sort of stuff uh, from 12 to 50 people is a really awkward business size too big to be small too small to be big very hard to organize you need leaders managers and technicians but you can't afford leaders managers and technicians um, so it's a very awkward size that we call the desert uh, and you're trying to cross the desert um, or you collapse back to being a boutique. Um, uh, and then uh, after about 50 people, you're um, what we call a performance entrepreneur or performance business where you're uh, building a business between 50 and 250 people where basically you're now a more grown-up business with assets, with, you know, all the grown-up stuff like an HR plan and a business plan and, uh, you know, leaders, managers, technicians and, you know, all that stuff. Uh, and then about 250, you actually become a mini corporate um, and uh, and then you change the whole game again. Uh, so the entrepreneurial journey or the books that I wrote, sorry, is Entrepreneur Revolution is very good for startups and early stage businesses that are wanting to, you know, be very pure uh, entrepreneur. Um, entrepreneur revolution. Uh, sorry, that entrepreneur revolution. And entrepreneur revolution also documents, uh, you know, the history of uh, not quite really corporations over the last hundred years, but you know, the mentality almost yeah, it, in the it ecosystem. It paints a picture that we are living in very special times, yeah. and that and that the opportunity of the times that we're in is really around being in, in an entrepreneurial team versus a big industrial revolution corporate. Um, or if you are in a corporate, to bring some of the entrepreneurial mindset to the table. Uh, and then the next one's a key person of influence, which is about the importance of establishing yourself as an industry influencer, um, that essentially the, the billions of dollars that's been spent on social media technology is like a microphone that amplifies personal brand, and you'd be absolutely crazy not to know how to use that. Um, so in the sense of a microphone, the people who make the most money from microphones are actually not people who know microphones they're people who know how to sing so my book is very much how do you get a message across using the technology it's not about understanding the technology it's about understanding your own message mm. um, and then the next book is oversubscribed which is really if you imagine that crossing the desert requires you to have a a, um, a ready-made market and to maintain demand and supply tension as you scale and make sure that you always have enough customers um, oversubscribed is very much getting yourself into a position where you're swamped for customers, swamped for opportunities, swamped for investors, yeah. so you can scale. Um, and then the next book that comes out is called 24 Assets, which is a way of codifying business into 24 digital assets that are required for scale. So it basically says 
by the time you hit a performance business, you're going to need these 24 things in a digital format. So I'm just really drilling into these are the 24 things that you have to have digitally. Take us through the revenue. We've spoken about this as well. Take me through the revenue per person theory. Yeah, so revenue per person, if you Google the concept revenue per person, Google gives you a bad answer. It basically pulls out into one of those boxes. It says that revenue per person has something to do with employee engagement. And that would be true if you had two identical factories sitting side by side and one of them had higher revenue per person than the other and all things were equal. Yeah, okay, higher employee engagement or motivation might be a factor. But ultimately, revenue per person is down to the underlying assets of the business. So, for example, to use a really basic example, if my family owned a big house in Mayfair, a big building in Mayfair, and we rent that out for a million a month, um, I probably only need three people to make 12 million a year because there's a whopping big asset sitting underneath it. It doesn't need a lot of people because the asset does most of the work. Um, So that is an example where revenue per person is not about uh, the um, motivated people, it's about the underlying asset. So it's actually the same. If you get into business, what really creates high revenue per person is underlying assets, but the assets that matter now are not the traditional assets of land, labor, capital, enterprise. They're the modern assets that are digital. Um, So things like brand culture, intellectual property, positioning in the market, data, um, all of that is the new economy asset that drives revenue per person. So imagine a team of four people who magically have a 100,000 person database, and it's a really responsive database. Those four people are gonna make a lot of revenue per person Mm. because they're sitting on a whopping big database. Um, If you take uh, two consultants and one consultant, uh, they're both equally as talented, but one consultant records 100 YouTube videos that are being watched by 1,000 people per month, Um, that consultant's going to earn a lot more money than the consultant who's just out there knocking on doors and handing out business cards. Um, So what we're looking for when we're developing businesses now is to build digital assets that scale. And the way you know you've done a good job of that is that you end up with abnormally high revenue per person. So a company like Google has revenue per person north of a million, Apple's north of a million, Facebook's just around a million. So these businesses that are the world leaders at um, digital assets, they have tens of thousands of employees uh, earning a million per person in revenue per person. Okay, that makes sense. And the reason I go with revenue per person is it's a much easier number than gross profit per person. The, the thing you probably actually see if you're an accountant would be high gross profit per person, but it's, but it's hard for a small business to... A lot of the time, small businesses can calculate revenue per person on the back of a napkin versus gross profit per person, which they may not have access to. That makes sense. So um, at the same time, you start a key person of influence. Um, is that right? You started Dent about the same time? Yeah, what is now Dent. It had a different brand in the beginning. What was the brand before? <laughs> so it was a big brand mistake called Intrivo. Uh, and Trivo stood for Entrepreneur Revolution. Right. Uh, it was an acronym, but no one could say it, spell it, or remember it. Yeah, I did have that problem myself. Um, which is basically strike one, two, and three when you're creating a brand. So you're always learning. Right? We this. Yes. We just, you, we, you were about to ask a question before we went off on a tangent about the process of starting writing the books. Yeah, okay. We finish up the offer first. Yeah. And then we'll go on for it. Yep, absolutely. The way of this all sounds smooth post, uh, post-editing. Yeah, no, it does. And also, because Dan's interviewing, I have a script here, basically. Nice. So, when you uh, when you when we were talking about your books, you said there's a bit of a process going through. So, speaking with 24 assets in particular, uh, 
how did like how did you start that? How did you join it down? Has it become twenty four? And and I guess really good question about like all authors is how do you not just sit there for months on end going what's what's twenty five? There must be twenty five. Yeah, well, how do you know when to stop? Of course yeah. you did. I mean that's natural, right? You never know when to stop. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, you've got to put a line in the sand somewhere. Um, for the book Twenty Four Assets, I wrote it reluctantly. Uh, so you just want Jack Bauer to star in it. Is that yeah, what was going yeah, on? Was Keith Sutherland uh, all day long. You know, it's, it's got to be this number. Got to be. Got to be twenty four. Got to be twenty four. Uh, I, I wrote it reluctantly um, when I when Oversubscribed came out, and it was Oversubscribed was initially a very quick success. So, you know, it became uh, like in the bestseller charts. It was in the top hundred for Amazon for a while. Um, it was a big success on Audible. Um, and I really did say, I do not want to write another book or else I'm properly an author and I'm less of an entrepreneur. And I just kind of went, I'm not going to write another book. And um, I was actually talking to my mum about it and she said, oh, what's your next one going to be? And I said, um, I said I'm not doing another book. Um, anyway, I, I, I sat down with a number of entrepreneurs over the following year and I kept thinking about the problem that they were having, which is that they would hit a point and not be able to scale past that point. Mm. Um, what was that point generally? About 25 people. Okay. Um, so it was a really common thing that at about 25 people, uh, it was like almost like if you imagine that entrepreneurs are like rocket engineers and they're all getting up to a certain height, but then after that they all just explode. And you're thinking, why are these fundamentally good businesses just not getting escape velocity? Um, so I started just sort of like, not for writing a book, I started um, uh, just thinking about, you know, what's what gets you past that hump? What gets you across that desert? And, and I was spending time with some people who'd built 15 million, 20 million pound revenue companies, companies that hit the million pound a month mark. Um, and I was, I was trying to kind of figure out what are they doing differently? And it's kind of hard because, you know, they're a big established business at that point versus a business that might be doing a million a year and you're trying to look for the differences. And I actually, to, and I've not shared this, but I had this um, very strange meeting with a guy who was a client and he burst into tears and he said that his business was on the verge of collapse um, and he talked about what do I do, how do I sell it, it's worth nothing, what have I created, have I got anything of value that I've even, you know, put all this energy in, but, you know, what is it that I've actually created? And it was in that weird, tense moment. There was a room of about five or six of us and we're sitting around and, you know, he, he talked about his affecting his marriage and his health and his, you know, depression and all that sort of stuff. And, um, and when we started picking apart what he had created, I, I don't know where it came from, but I actually drew a little bit of a model um, of these are the compartments that you've created in. So you've created uh, intellectual property, you've registered intellectual property, you've got content, you've got a methodology, um, you've got a look and feel for your brand, you've got some brand ambassadors, you've got um, vision and values. So I started mapping out like it's just a couple of digital assets. And then you were like, wait a minute, 12, 13, 14, 14 15, 15, this is going somewhere. Right. Yeah, I thought if I, if I could just get a few more out, there's a book in this. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, Mom, I lied again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, so it came, it came out, and 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 then, and it actually was missing about. It was twenty one actually, um, and then I realised some stuff was missing, and I played around with the model, and then I started showing it to people, and I created a little sticker system that they had to 
used my model that I'd drawn, which was the 24 assets that looked a little bit like a building or a house that I drew. Um, and there was all these different spots and we had to put stickers that were either red, yellow or green for had they created something in that space or not. And this little activity that we took people through was just blowing people's minds. And I mean, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, sort of say that it was some genius thing, but it was a very useful activity for people. It was almost like taking the mess of building a business and having a, a filing system of places to put it and compartmentalize. And it became very clear, oh, I've done these bits, but actually I've not, in my product ecosystem, I've not done any gifts. I've not done any um, product for prospects. Uh, how does it compare with something like business model generation? Um, it would probably be a little bit more of a complex business model generation would probably be really well suited if you're in the startup phase. Yeah. Whereas 24 assets is very much for I've got 10 plus employees. Right. Okay. Looking to scale. Oh uh, yeah. Because I mean, at that point you've gone way past business, business model, model generation. generation absolutely. Yeah. And it, it just, so this just... would be business model generation for seven figure businesses. Okay. And is it a, is it a visual book at all? Cause you've just described yeah. something quite yeah, visual. It's but... visual. Yeah. yeah? Okay. So the early stages of the book go through the problem of not having revenue per person, the problem of getting stuck on the entrepreneurial journey, the phases, um, and, and taking people through some concepts like income follows assets, not sales and marketing. And it sort of lays a bit of the religion or the philosophy foundations. Mm. The middle part of the book is all about the 24 assets and what best practice looks like in all of those. And then the final part of the book is me scaring the shit out of people with the craziness that's about to come in the next 15 years and mapping out the trends that you must surf or be dumped by. Obviously, I do completely intend to talk to you about these trends because <laughs> I've been in one of your lectures about the trends and it was extremely interesting and uh, I have absolutely every intention of asking you to scare the shit out of Rich who won't know what you're talking about yet. But before we do that... Before we get into the... Before we do that, can I just ask, what, like, why did you start writing books then? Is it Do you think it was actually something to do with your mum or is it actually just because you know what, you were on all these flights and it was a cathartic exercise? Like... Uh, it, well, it, it certainly certainly I grew up around a writer, so that kind of normalised it. But um, I started writing blogs uh, on a website that was called Academy that I later ended up buying and owning and sure. um, being the managing director of. Uh, but I started out as a user of Academy, and um, I was posting blogs, and I got that immediate enjoyable feedback from writing blogs. And then uh, I progressed to you know it's kind of like that was the gateway drug into writing books and, yep. and eventually wrote books um yeah and it was just a lot of a lot of the people i respect and that that i had respect for and admired they had a book out and i thought that it must be a useful process it must be there must be a lot of value in in the process of producing one okay um having listened to uh well mostly for me listen to your books as i mentioned you talk about richard branson a lot yeah yeah uh is he the epitome of an entrepreneur well, he's a he's a great example because everyone knows who he is. So my readers are in the US, Australia, in the UK, and Singapore. So he's a very easy. I use him as an example probably too much because I'm looking for examples that everyone's going to immediately know and relate to. I mean, you could use Rupert Murdoch as an example of an entrepreneur if you wanted. He's Australian. Yeah, he is, um, and widely loved. Widely and, loved. Yeah, and and no, not at all a controversial figure. No, um, no. I think look, Branson's got to be one of the most iconic. Um, embodiments of what entrepreneurship's about for most people. The guy's got planes, trains, islands, and spaceships. I mean, he's he's got a you know it doesn't get much cooler than that record label. Um, yeah, kite surfing across the channel. Yeah, it's pretty cool to be fair. At sixty, 
Have you heard about him doing his uh, hot air balloon challenge? Yeah, yeah. hot air balloons. Quite amazing. Um, okay, so um, <laughs> going back into the person. So if Richard Branson's flying around on uh, air balloons, hot air balloons and kite surfing and stuff, what's Daniel Priestley doing on his typical day? <laughs> well, um, so at the moment... You're Australian, so kite surfing. Yeah, obviously. yeah. So, well, I do snowboarding. I do those sorts of things. Um I spend a lot of time working with entrepreneurs and, and solving those channels. I've got a business in Australia, Singapore, UK and USA. So I'm at any given time, we can be having at any time of the day, the business is open somewhere. Yeah. Um, so I find myself often having early morning chat with uh, Australia and Singapore and having an evening chat with the USA sometimes. But I also, because I'm a dad, I put a lot of rules and boundaries around spending good quality time at home. Um, so I would say almost every night of the week I do um, the bedtime bath time routine um, and I make sure that, you know, which kind of kicks off at about 6.30 till 7.30. Yeah. Um, so it means, you know, whereas I used to work right through till eight, nine o'clock at night um, and and not think too, too much about stopping, now I'm pretty focused on being a dad as well. Fair enough. I mean, if you were to interrupt this bath and bedtime process and let's say instead you were organizing a dinner with the three best entrepreneurs in the world that you could have i mean a would you sack off a bedtime and bath time to have that one dinner and secondly who would it be with uh yes i would definitely i definitely do, would do that i can't um, believe you said uh, shame on you your son will be listening right. to this in years and son Son, you'll understand one day. Yeah, fair. Okay. You'll understand. Uh, Elon Musk would have to be, um, uh, yeah, the first and, and, and absolutely, you know, I mean, as far as an entrepreneur, it's... it's Is he more impressive than Richard Branson? Um, yeah, I think there's, there's something about, I mean, he's certainly more impressive in the sense that um, he's tackling some really, really big problems. You know, Branson's, Branson's an interesting character. Um, he... He was in the right place, right time, and made the absolute most of it. Um, He's had loads of failures as well. It doesn't feel like Elon Musk has actually suffered as many failures as Richard Branson, really. The interesting thing with Branson, I mean, and Branson's brilliant, and he's applied a great philosophy to a lot of industries. You know, he basically applies the philosophy of uh, shake up an old industry, champion consumers, and make a fun place to work. Yeah, Um, and brand, 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 right? Um, and he's done that to a lot of old industries and and shaken them up. He he was when he was in the right place at the right time. Uh, he he exited a company for five hundred and ten million pounds um, in the early nineties, so the equivalent of billions today. Um, and had he put that five hundred ten million pounds into London real estate, he'd be massively more wealthy than he is today. So he he's actually from that point of exiting for a lot of money, he's done well, um, but he actually hasn't kept up with. Um, some fairly normal assets. He's had some wins and some failures. One of his biggest wins was by chance he got into the airline industry in Australia uh, when Ansett Australia collapsed. So he was only operating in Australia for a year or so and then the major carrier uh, went bust and 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 left a 50% hole in the market, um, which is where he had his next big win. Um, now you've got to be in the market to have that win. You've got to be luck. You've got to you've got to be in there to, to experience that luck. In it to win out. Yeah, um, Musk is a little bit of a different category. He reinvents industries deliberately, and he's quite clearly working with a genius level IQ. He's um, tackling insurmountable problems um, that I don't think any mere mortal could could do. And 
I don't think um, to the extent I don't think he's in the right place at the right time. He positions himself uh, in the right place at the right time. I mean, it's 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 bonkers the types of stuff Musk gets himself involved in and the levels of stress and and problem solving that he he throws himself under the bus with. What would you ask Elon Musk as your first question? Um, if I had the opportunity to have dinner with Elon Musk, to be I'll honest, sort it out, mate. Don't yeah, worry. To, to be honest, I'd ask what he what is there what he needs help with. Um, what I can help, what I can do to support. Um, I think. Um, I think that's a sign of an amazing entrepreneur that others look up to him and just think, I want to be on that ride and just help you make it happen. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I would. I would really. I'd ask his feedback as to in what ways he thinks I can use my assets, my skills, my talents to impact more people, and. Um, and is there any is there anything that I'm missing because I'm too close that would be a logical extension that would impact more lives than I than I'm currently able to? Mm. So I'd probably be talking to him about that. Branson. Yeah, definitely. Let's have Branson at the dinner party too. Although I feel like I'd be left out of the conversation at that point. Well, maybe, two, but well, two two it depends what you're asking, mate. You're controlling it. Basically, you're I'd pouring be, the wine as well. I'd be pouring, I think I'd be sitting there just listening at that point where they're basically talking about, you know, their typical day and I just want to shut up and not really share mine. You'd be like, well, you guys are there for bath time <laughs> yeah. as well, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Sat the sun off. He's upstairs hanging out with the lads. Um, just uh, what, what would be your first question to Branson then? What would be the main thing you want to ask him? We'll talk about with him uh it would be i mean it would be very similar and it would be along the line it would be along the lines of um what am i missing you know um or what support can i offer you um or in what what are the big what are, what big global problem or big challenge do you think the world faces that i could have an impact on mm. um you know and just be be curious on those sorts of things i'd probably ask him how he gets his hair so it's quite lion maning yeah it's quite impressive i would ask whether he's modeled himself on aslan or something like that it does look a lot like yeah, it's a great shout um uh, who would your third guest be um i think i'd i'd be interested to uh work with i'd be interested to have like a social entrepreneur um, like Lynn Twist, or um, you know, or someone who's doing uh, Sylvia Earle, uh, who's not necessarily a classic entrepreneur, but is using an entrepreneurial mindset to s- tackle a big problem. Mm. Um, so, someone who's you know Sylvia Earle and, and the oceans, Lynn Twist, ending hunger, working with indigenous people. Um, you know, so so people, someone who's See, kind now of, you're really getting left out of the conversation because the other two could probably own that as well. Yeah, so. I know. So they're they're just sort of like batting you know ideas around, talking about you know what do you do when your rocket you know isn't flying the way that you want it to, and, mm. you know, and what do you do when you're trying to save an ocean and well, at least this out. way, if we let you have both those guests as well, then you've got four people, four yeah. guests, two are women, two are men, and actually there's a nice equilibrium at the table there as well, go. and that's you know uh, yeah a better host at the very least exactly. Um, okay, so uh, how would you describe yourself? So you, you've uh, asked these guys for dinner, and they're like, yeah, sure, Dan, no problem. Just a quick Google. Oh, he's the author, um, which is the label you hate. So how do you describe yourself? Oh, I mean, I would describe myself as someone who runs a entrepreneur accelerator, passionate about the times that we live in, um, you know, working with entrepreneurs across the world to, to build, you know, global sore businesses successful businesses so interestingly on this point because we always ask our guests how to describe yourself and some uh, describe their business and their mission and some people describe themselves so and, and then some people are very self-aware about it as well they're like but you know that is me 
Where do you sit in that? You know, do you did you did you, did you hear me say that back and think, sure, I did just describe the business. Yeah, well, I did. Me, I or... did describe the business. I mean, essentially, who I am is is not necessarily intrinsically terribly interesting. I write I write books. I've been a best-selling author. I've built businesses. I've supported some charities and all that sort of stuff. But essentially, I'm just I'm just a guy who grew up on the Sunshine Coast in Australia. Um, didn't want to stay in that community. Started businesses. Travelled around and. Are you well known in Australia. Uh, yeah, reasonably. So when I went down there a little while ago, about four or five hundred people turned up to my talk, okay. um, and it was about a hundred dollars a head. And um, like the books have sold incredibly well in Australia. Uh, if I put on a webinar, you know, a few hundred people from Australia will jump on, even if it's a bad time zone. Do you feel any duty to um, ignite uh, entrepreneurial attitude in Australia? I, you know, I'll be honest and say I don't. I don't know if there is one, isn't one, but like the only thing, you sometimes get sucked into your own microcosm, right? It's very clear in the UK, it's a big yeah. focus for the government that's funding. There's this whole setup here to make sure, mm. and a lot of the most famous entrepreneurs and successful entrepreneurs in the world are British. Yeah. Uh, joking aside, Rupert Murdoch aside, there's not that many like big names like him. So is that a systematic problem in Australia? Do you see that as something like a mission later in life? It'd be nice to go and no. help. Or am I completely wrong and there's shitloads yeah, of Australia, Well, Australia is incredibly entrepreneurial. Um, what you tend to see with Australian entrepreneurs is that uh, they hit a certain size and they head to New York or they head to LA or they head to San Fran or they head to um, the, uh, the UK. Uh, you'll, you'll actually find a lot of people who are COOs, leaders, um, there's a lot of C-suite. I think Australians punch well above their weight for quietly getting on with building and running businesses. Um, and they tend to be all over the world. Like for a small country of 20 million people, there's a lot of Australians in San Fran, a lot of Australians in... And like I say, you're our second entrepreneur, entrepreneurial guest that's Australian yeah. in, in 10 guests. Um, so there's that. It's a, it's a killer... It's a great community. Probably one of the downsides with Australia is that um, it's, Dis- it's Disneyland. Uh, nothing terribly bad happens there. So it's very easy to be comfortable and um, you're not confronted with big problems and challenges because it's just such a very happy, easy country. Sure. And a lot of people, just uh, relating this to America, a lot of people say this about San Francisco and LA. It's like, well, I'd rather run a business in LA, like in many ways, but it's too comfortable. The weather's too amazing. The beach is there. The lifestyle's amazing. Mm -hmm. I just don't feel that like get up and go that I do in San Francisco. So I kind of chose to be there. Yeah. Northern San Francisco is not an absolutely beautiful place, but it does have that extra drive. Just a little bit of an edge. Yeah, precisely. Um, what kind of routine do you have? You're an early bird, late owl. Like you mentioned, having to talk to people all around the day. Do you sleep much? Yeah. So my my son wakes me up at about six thirty, seven o'clock every morning. Yeah. And I spend from seven to eight thirty playing Legos and and hanging out with him, uh, and answering text messages and re- responding to a few emails. Oh, so he's got an iPhone. Yeah. So what what we'll do is we'll we'll play some games and he'll he'll have the Legos out and all that sort of stuff or we'll be doing some drawing or watching some, some YouTube videos. Give them 24 blocks and red, go, sort out in order. Exactly, <laughs> red, yellows and yeah. greens. Um, and then on the, on the side, without him noticing too, too much, I'll start responding to a few of my emails. Um, and then I typically will do my, I do my first meeting around 8.30 um, on Skype. Um, and then I'll, I only go into my own actual offices twice a month. So I have an office here in London. We've got several offices. We have an office in Milton Keynes. We have an office in London. Um, we have an office in Singapore, Australia. I try 
I, I find that I'm a disruptive force in the office if I'm in there too much. So I only go in twice a month. Um, so it's I a often, great excuse as well. It's, it's a great like, excuse. guys, it's not for me, it's for you. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, yeah. for your benefit. So um, I will typically, no two weeks are the same because I do a lot of speaking. Um, so sometimes I'm speaking internationally and I need to fly off and fly back. Sometimes I'm speaking around London. Um, uh, sometimes I'm just meeting people. I have a private members club that's just down the road from my house. Um, so I'll just kind of head on down to the private members club and meet a few people there. Um, and Is that in West London? Yeah, yeah. in a uh, home house. Okay. Um, and then... Um, uh, yeah, and then so I do a lot on Skype. I do a lot of face to face. I do a bit of speaking, and and uh, I, I have a great. Uh, I have two executive assistant roles that basically find good opportunities and and uh, put them in the diary. Two final questions. One, um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? And part two, because uh, obviously it was really three questions because I snuck another one in. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you'd give to people starting off now on their own entrepreneur journey? Mm. So the p- best piece of advice I ever got was uh, create versus consume. Um, so it was re- essentially that all joy comes from creation and um, pain and suffering comes from consumption. And that the more you're a consumer, uh, the more you wear yourself out and wear yourself down. And the more you're looking to consume things, the more you energetically lower your energy um, and the more you're engaged in the creative process the more you raise your energy and the more you get out of it um, so essentially the act of writing a song is better than listening to a song the, the act of writing a book is better than reading a book the act of doing something newsworthy is better than watching the news um, so uh, the best advice I got was this idea of stop trying to consume things and only only focus on creating things and don't try and avoid the creative process lean into the creative process because create creating stuff is hard but ultimately joyful consuming stuff is easy but ultimately depressing love it that's great so that's your that's your advice you've been given yeah now you have to be really insightful and think of some other piece of advice (laughs) that you can give to Uh, people so depending on you can't just copy your own advice that's That's, that's not fair it would be definitely um different for where someone's at in their People need to hear different things at where they are in different stages. But one of the one of the good ones I like to share is uh, you get what you pitch for. So you get what you pitch for is essentially a lot of people are waiting for something to happen, and actually you need to go out and pitch it. And the pitch that matters most is the thousandth pitch. So you pitch things into existence by pitching them repetitively to a lot of people over and over again. The I have a dream speech, believe it or not, was actually the thousandth pitch. Um, so he'd done three years of the I have a dream speech at every little church. Uh, you know 10 times a week Um, and then he ends up doing the I have a dream speech in front of Washington and it becomes the I have a dream speech but actually it was pitch number 1000 so advice that I give to a lot of people is you get what you pitch for if you're pitching this is hard it'll be hard if you're pitching uh, no one's joining my team no one will join your team if you pitch this isn't fundable it won't be fundable Um, so if you want it to be fundable, you're going to have to pitch it as fundable. If you want someone to join the team, you have to pitch it as a great opportunity. Um, but, but essentially, you're going to get what you pitch for. So you create the story with positive thinking and repetitive action. Yeah, less about positive thinking, because I think most of entrepreneurship is good pitching despite negative thinking. Um, I personally, I wouldn't say I'm a positive thinker. I have days where I'm pretty negative and days that I'm positive and days that I'm just in the dark. Um, but I'm conscious of the idea that regardless of what's going on in my inner world, I have to do good pitching. If I'm going to pitch to my team, if I'm going to pitch to 
um, investors, if I'm going to pitch to clients, I need to put them first and make sure that I'm clear and credible and solving problems for them, regardless of what I'm personally thinking. Very fair. Okay, so the last question is the big one, which is what does the future hold for planet Earth? So so the future... The future is going to be massively disrupted on two axes. So the first axis is technology and the second axis is demographics. So demographics is basically the, what you do predictably when you hit certain ages. Um, so we actually have a huge demographic, a lump of people turning 70 at the moment called the baby boomers. They were born 1946 to 64. So believe it or not, every single day this year is a new Guinness World Record for the most 70-year-olds um, and the most people turning 70. Uh, and that will keep going for the next 10 years. So we have this massive aging population. When you turn 70, you pay a lot less tax, you earn less, uh, you have more health and mental health issues. Um, So all of those things are about to happen in droves for a huge number of people in the population, especially outside of London, because London is a magnet for young, enthusiastic people. So when you go outside of London, you're gonna get older, less enthusiastic people uh, and, and considerably older populations. So this is a huge disruptive force that causes or helps to cause things like Brexit and Trump and, and all of that. Um, when people say I'm not earning as much as I used to, that's actually normal just demographics that statistically you're going to lose a third of your income from 55 to 65. Yeah. So um, not earning what you used to is just like... It's not quite got anything to do with immigrants so much as your own like, ageing process. Yes, exactly. So it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like saying I get taller from 10 to 20 and then I'm not taller anymore. Um, it's fairly normal. Um, uh, so, and then on the flip side, you have uh, on demographics, you have a huge population called the millennials who essentially are currently 20 to 35. And that population are radically different and reinventing everything as well. So they're doing the sharing economy. They're the most in debt uh, generation ever. They don't have servicing, uh, debt servicing uh, like any other generation. Um, uh, house prices are 20 times the average millennial wage versus four or five times the average wage for boomers. Um, boomers want to sell houses uh, to fund retirement. Millennials don't want to buy them. Um, boomers want to. Uh, boomers bought cars. Millennials don't buy cars. Boomers got married at 25. Millennials get married at 35. Um, boomers didn't have credit cards until they were 30. Millennials had credit cards at 17, 18. Um, uh, so they're they're very different uh, generations. Uh, ownership versus access. Uh, sorry, access versus ownership is the mindset of a millennial. Um, ownership is a mindset of a boomer. So you and actually have a, people off the ownership ladder in itself. Yeah. yeah. So you have this um, uh, selling pressure of boomers wanting to sell things they own, and millennials only want to access them for a night or two. Um, uh, so there's so demographics are going to cause a massive shift. Um, this, the other axis is technology. We've now hit a point where technology unemployment is on an exponential curve. So when I was a kid, uh, the cool kids worked in CD shops, uh, the geeky kids worked in bookshops, and everyone else worked in uh, the checkout. So no one works in CD shops or bookshops or checkouts anymore because all of those things have been automated. And behind the scenes there, the accountant who used to do the store accounting is automated. Um, The stock controller who used to choose how much stock to reorder is automated. Um, And all through the chain, 
uh, more and more of the chain is now completely automated. Um, and people say, oh, robots doing jobs. And no, robots don't do jobs, but a consultant in LA who's releasing regular YouTube videos is winning market share from a consultant here in London who's not. Um, it's not a robot, it's just using technology. Uh, so pieces of software. The other thing too is if software does even heavy lifting, it costs jobs. So if a team of six can now do something that a team of 10 used to do because of software doing some heavy lifting, that's um, costing jobs. To put this also in perspective, Vodafone, uh, has a hundred thousand employees and WhatsApp has 250 employees. Hmm. Now WhatsApp has a bigger user base than Vodafone. WhatsApp is serving more text messages and now more phone calls than Vodafone. Um, and Vodafone has a hundred thousand employees and, Vod and WhatsApp's 250. Not Vodafone makes a lot more money though. Uh, currently, yeah. yeah. But you know, WhatsApp was sold for 19 billion uh, for a reason and they have a business plan around it. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, Amazon has 150,000 and it disrupted. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Walmart with 2.5 million. Uh, so, you know, we, we're seeing some big disruption. And whoever disrupts Amazon, by the way, will probably only have a thousand employees. Um, so we actually have uh, technology unemployment. Uh, we have speech recognition coming on board uh, very quickly, which really creates technology unemployment. Um, we have uh, AI systems coming on board, you know, algorithms that self-correct, uh, which creates more technology unemployment. Um, so all of this sort of stuff, it doesn't just create technology unemployment, it also creates globalization. Um, so you can move jobs to a low-income country. Uh, but believe it or not, uh, automation is actually costing more jobs in China than anywhere else. So manufacturing has doubled in the US since 1985, but with one third of the workforce. And in China, Foxconn just got rid of 40,000 employees because they use technology to automate those roles. Um, and they intend to get rid of another 120,000 next year. So China's losing jobs to automation, but there is globalization. Mm. And then the other loser is the governments. So governments for 5,000 years have defined themselves by geography um, and they put a ring fence around their border, but digital just is planetary. So essentially you get planetary small businesses and planetary companies that define themselves as wherever they are on the planet and well, everywhere. Like Estonia's e-passport. Exactly, yeah. right? And they and, and also just, you know, you would never imagine a technology company saying, oh, we're only going to be geographically limited to this, you know, we're going to call ourselves uh, UK Google or we're going to call ourselves, um, you know, Singapore Facebook. Uh, and only, you know, only ever Singapore. Mm. So as soon as you get a global digital business, they can bounce money around at the speed of light. And basically governments can only police their geographical borders. So governments are running on an old software called geography and uh, companies are running on a new software called brand and ideology and, and digital. Um, so governments are gonna take at least 15 years to figure this out. 
And, and not only that, they've set themselves back so far because they've chosen the wrong problem. So they've chosen this problem called let's yeah. sort out the EU yeah. rather than... Or immigration let, in general. Yeah, let's, let's chase after migrants, Muslims and millionaires as opposed to let's actually figure out the times that we live in. So, um, so all of those converging trends. And then if you want to add a fifth trend, it would be the fact that we're facing some pretty big planetary problems as far as climate change, species extinction and all of that. Um, so you've got these big convergent problems. All of these problems converge in one axis in the next 10 to 15 years. So another insightful interview with a rather intelligent man that's documented a whole load of entrepreneurial stories and put them down on paper rather than just thinking or talking about them or holding that knowledge to himself. So a secret life of a leader exposed and shared in the wildest ways. And what do we actually have in store next week for our passionate listeners, Rich? So next week, we've actually got another Aussie, uh, Alithia Navarro, which uh, Dan actually had trouble saying her name, uh, even though she corrected him the first time. For the rest of the interview, he called her Alicia, which uh, she kind of went along with, which is cool. It's a reflex. reflex. It's it's, it's expected that you'd say Alicia, and of course, being the Brit that I am, I'm unbelievably uncultured. Yeah, well, she was fine with it, but um, it was a brilliant interview. She's a very interesting entrepreneur. And um, funny. And very funny. And, you know, somebody else has come over from Australia, kind of, you know, what I find really uh, interesting about her is that she has absolutely no qualms about calling herself a massive geek. And she doesn't look like a massive geek, but deep down, she is a massive geek. We go through the trials and tribulations of her building a company with her co-founder, Joe, uh, called Skimlinks. It was originally called Skimbit. Uh, and it's one of the breakthrough successes in the UK tech scene. So you can subscribe to us on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. Uh, you can also find all of the past episodes on our website, secretleaders.com. And if you want to get in touch, simply email us at hello at secretleaders.com. So until next time, have fun.